Good morning. So the lesson this morning is titled Rooted in the Reality of Jesus. Uh, This is going to be a really fundamental lesson and I think has a lot of things in it that I probably say somewhat frequently. Uh, And so this may be just a reminder of things that uh, get said fairly often. But it's something that I've been thinking a lot about in our studies, congregationally, in my personal studies, and is something that uh, I really need very badly in my own growth in the Lord, and that I want to um, be focusing on with a lot more purpose in my faith. So Colossians 2 is going to be the, just the introduction passage. We're going to be mainly in 1 John, but Colossians 2 really encompasses the idea of the lesson. Uh, You'll notice in verse 2 of Colossians 2 that Paul's hope was that we could gain the full assurance of understanding and the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. You'll notice in verse 3, it's in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in verse 5, you'll notice that Paul is rejoicing to see their good discipline and the stability of their faith in Christ. In verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed, overflowing with gratitude. Verse 8, we're to see to it that no one takes us captive through philosophy, empty deception, according to the traditions of men or the principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, because in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So you get the idea that everything is ultimately centered on Jesus. Our faith begins because of Jesus through Jesus. Our faith is sustained by Jesus. Our devotion is directed to Jesus. And everything we do is, is to glorify Jesus, exalt Jesus, and bring us closer to Jesus. And so we're going to be dealing with the reality of Jesus and how that should biblically impact us on some very fundamental levels. And I want to bring out verse 8 here as we get into our first point. Our first point is going to be on the reality of Jesus. And we're going to kind of look at how John saw Jesus and then come back to how Paul saw Jesus and kind of think about these two men as examples. Um, But verse 8, our faith in God isn't because God philosophically makes the most sense. Even though I think, honestly, he does. You know, I think if somebody is thinking on a, you know, philosophical level or a moral level, a logical level, Ultimately, honestly, God makes the most sense. But that's not why we believe. You know, we may think about those things as like supportive arguments or maybe angles we can take in conversations we have. But in verse 8, you notice that Paul was saying that philosophy can actually be something that takes people captive. So that's, that's really not, that's not what persuades us ultimately. It shouldn't be. And it's not even that scientifically God makes the most sense. That's ultimately not what convinces us or motivates us or forms our faith in God. You know, it's not just that scientific proofs show design in the world and evidence for a creator. I think that's helpful. I do think, if you're to think about it honestly, science does point to God. There is an overwhelming amount of evidence that points to a creator. So again, although that may be helpful, that's, that's not why we believe. That's not why first century Christians believed. That's not why the apostles believed in God. None of those arguments were the foundation of their faith at all. So what was it that made them so bold, so courageous, so sacrificial, so loving, so humble? What was it that grounded them? 
And it's in Colossians 2. Everything's centered on Jesus. Everything is about being rooted in him, being built up in him, and recognizing that Jesus came into the world as a living man. And God set aside reliable witnesses who were pure in heart, who were honest and reliable witnesses. People who, whose lives were completely and radically transformed and rearranged by their relationship with Jesus, and people who were rooted in the Jewish religion so that the scriptures, not just their experience with Jesus, but their experience as it relates to scripture, was also what formed their faith in Jesus. So turn to 1 John, uh, just chapter 1. So again, we're going to look at 1 John for a while here, and then we'll come back to Paul later in the lesson. But 1 John 1, 1 through 4 here, again, just thinking about how our faith is ultimately rooted in the reality of Jesus and what that means and just how important that is. Uh, So I'm going to read this, and then I'll reiterate what's on the board there. So again, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So just really simply, there are seven times here in this short set of verses and statements where John emphasizes the reality of Jesus. You notice in verse 1, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, touched with our hands. Verse 2, the life was manifested, we have seen again, and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. Number 6, was manifested to us again. And in verse 3, he again says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So John's not saying, you know, that Jesus is a philosophy. You know, it's, it's, this is a man who he walked with, he talked with. The faith of every New Testament author was completely rooted in the reality of who Jesus truly was as a man, a man who lived among men, a person that man walked with, talked with, learned from. And you notice how intimate this is in verse 1, that John was not only a witness who heard Jesus, but he was touched with his hands. You know, John had the most close and intimate fellowship with Jesus. So why did John have such a bold, dedicated faith? How was it he was able to invest as much as he did? It's because his faith was invested into a man. He loved Jesus. And as we um, brought up recently, uh, I think it was Jason, as he was talking about 1 John in relation to Glenn, You know, John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. There was something extremely personal about how John saw Jesus, not just in his earthly life, but even beyond that, when he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Uh, Turn back to 2 Peter chapter 2 really quick. It should be, or chapter 1. It should just be a couple pages back in your Bibles. The the list of scriptures there, um, we're only going to look at 2 Peter. I'll reference the others, but I want to read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 16 here. Just to kind of emphasize that this this is an anthem woven through the New Testament. This isn't just what one or two people say, but this this is the anthem 
of what formed the faith of New Testament writers. Second Peter chapter 1. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up, well, 16 through 18. Uh, I put the wrong scripture on the board there. It's 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made known to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So again, what, what made Peter so bold, so courageous, so committed? What was it that gave him so much wisdom and, and helped him grasp this, this great love of God that changed him and humbled him so deeply? You know, it wasn't just because he was very religious, not just because he participated in a local church group, but Peter was dedicated to Jesus Christ, the person. And that changed Peter in ways that would have been impossible any other way. So in verse 16, what Peter is conveying again is this isn't just a cleverly devised fable. You know, we're just not making up some nice story or presenting, again, some philosophy or some religious teaching. This is about who Jesus was as a person that we saw. We were with him when God exposed his greater identity on the Mount of Transfiguration. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how there were 500 living witnesses. I think he says more than 500 living witnesses who had seen Jesus post-resurrection. He mentions how he himself had seen Jesus on the road to Damascus, how he himself was an eyewitness of Jesus. Luke mentions that although he was not an eyewitness, he had interviewed those who were eyewitnesses of the word and who had walked with Jesus. So even though Luke was not himself a witness, he still focused himself on the fact that Jesus was a living man who walked among men and his faith as well was formed by the fact that his devotion was to Jesus the person. And just to borrow a little bit from an evidences class we did um, a few months ago, I think it's important to remember that Jesus changed history forever. You know, the Jewish culture leading up to Jesus had all of these prophecies that a person would come into a very specific place among a specific people in a specific time frame and that he would create a people who would endure forever as a uh, posterity that would live from that time onward. History was changed forever by the man Jesus Christ. Everything in the Jewish religion was ultimately pointing to Jesus. And what Jesus revealed is that the Jewish religion in its entirety was all based in who he would be. Christianity in its entirety is based in who Jesus was and who he still is. Everything about what we are and even what the Jewish people were is ultimately all centered on Jesus. And he came into the culture of the Jews within Jerusalem. He changed that culture forever and formed a religion, Christianity, centered on who he is. And then as Christianity was spreading, the Jewish culture persecuted Christians because it was blasphemous. The Romans persecuted Christians and put them to death because they considered it blasphemous as well to not pay homage to Caesar as God. So you have a religion spreading rapidly at the exact time frame God predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. And even though there's no promise of any earthly gain or any 
prosperity or power that you'll gain from your faith. Even though it is assured in the first century, you are only going to lose in an earthly sense if you believe in Jesus. You're going to lose your popularity. You may lose your job. You may lose family relationships. You're going to lose your comfort. And yet this religion spread like wildfire in the first century, and obviously it continues on today. And that was changed. All of this was done by a man, not just by a philosophy, not just by a story, but by a person. 1 John 5, why, why is this so important? Just some initial implications of this that are very helpful. 1 John 5, 19 through 21, and this kind of bookends John by reiterating some things that were said in the first four verses. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. We'll talk about that last statement in verse 21 here in a minute um, and how important that is. But verse 20, especially related to what, again, was said in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that Jesus, he is eternal life. He is the embodiment of everything that is spiritual and unseen, all things that God has promised, everything that we are striving for, everything that we're, we are looking forward to is all encapsulated in who Jesus is as a person. Why is this important? Can you comprehend the time frame of eternity? Can you comprehend what heaven will be like as a place? You know, what we'll be doing in heaven? You know, I've thought about that. Like, what, I mean, what are we going to be doing in heaven? I know it'll be something, right? Um, we're called to be diligent and to be uh, laboring for the Lord. So heaven will be doing something, not just sitting around. So, I mean, how do we grasp these things that it seems like we just have no ability to grasp? We can grasp Jesus. I want to illustrate it this way, that with Eva. The unfortunate thing about being a preacher's wife is you find your way into illustrations and sermons, whether you like it or not. I did, I did warn her about this one, though. Um, Eva lived in Indiana, right? That's where her family is. She's very comfortable there. She didn't know what Savannah was going to be like. She knew it was going to be hard. So why was she willing to leave all of these comfortable things, all of this security, to go somewhere where she didn't know what Savannah was like? She was pretty sure it was going to be really challenging to live here. And she likes winter, so no winter here, basically. So she's you know, losing a lot of things she really loves. It's because the person that she came to love was here. I'm not trying to like, you know, uh, build myself up in that way or anything like that. Just as an illustration, right? What, what she knew about Savannah is the person that she has come to love is here. So even though I don't know what heaven will be like in some tangible sense, I can't comprehend eternity, I can love Jesus. And you know what makes heaven what it is? Is the Lord is there. That's what makes heaven what it is. I can love Jesus. I can desire to be with him where he is. And what I can comprehend is even life's, even life at its highest joy, if I really love Jesus, and I mean really grasp who he is, if I'm really serving God because I deeply, intimately, fully want to be with him, even life at its most climactic high is catastrophically broken. Because even the highest joys of life, I'm not with Jesus yet. 
I am not in the bodily presence of Jesus. He's still somewhere else. I'm still here where life is deeply broken, where joy is incomplete, where life is unpredictable, and where Satan, in a sense, is ruling over men who don't obey God and who are rebellious against him. So life at its highest point, the fact that Jesus is not physically here with us, but he is in heaven, puts everything in perspective, and I can grasp that, right? So that's what really roots our faith, is I don't understand everything about unseen realities, but Jesus is our reality. It's like Leviticus, right? So a lot of this came into my mind because of Leviticus. We're studying Leviticus, and the Jews in their culture had all of these very tangible reminders around them everywhere. Like even the clothing they would wear and how they would plant their crops, everything reminded them about God, everything. And so it's easy to think like, man, they had such an advantage. I mean, they're surrounded by spiritual reminders from head to toe inside their house, outside of their house. If they were obedient, it's just everything reminded them of God. So it can be easy to feel like, well, we're not as advantaged. I would argue we're more advantaged. If Jesus is who he should be to us, everything relates to him Everything reminds us of him. Whether we're with our family, we're alone, we're with friends, no matter what we do, everything should make us think of Jesus. Everything reminds us of him. Everything is brought to him as a sacrifice of praise. Again, he is the reality of all of those things. And the warning in verse 21, guard yourselves from idols. You know, since we, we can't see Jesus, we need to protect the reality of who he is. John is a very... First John is a very plain, direct letter, and he's never brought up idols. But what he's been doing is he's been trying to tell us, here's who Jesus really is, and here's what it really means to have a relationship with him. And so we have to be careful that we're thinking personally, honestly, and accurately about Jesus. When the Jews interacted with Jesus, too many of them did not think personally about him and his teaching. Too many were not thinking honestly or reflectively about his teaching And too many were not willing to think accurately about what he was saying and what it implied. Go back to chapter 2, verses 3 through uh, 6 here. And again, John is very direct about what does it mean to know Jesus, to know God. Verse 3, By this we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him, who says he abides in him, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So the way that we protect a true understanding of Jesus is not just that we intellectually have knowledge of him, but a part of knowing him is surrendering to him, having an impartial view of his word, listening to what he says and surrendering to it. So we need to be extremely careful that we're thinking about Jesus honestly and accurately. And all of that comes from a genuine desire to be rooted in the reality of who he is. 1 John 4, you know, knowing the reality of Jesus, like what we just read, it involves the reality of his love. And so to have a a true understanding of Jesus, then we need to be abiding in the reality of his love as well. And that is our highest calling, but it is also the most fundamental calling. It's, it's, just the way it is. It's, it's the easiest thing to drift from, to neglect, to forget, to be deceptive in not realizing, in, in self-deceit, how I'm, I'm drifting from that and not really abiding within that. There's nothing 
higher and more fundamental than the love of God that is in Jesus. Verse 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God is manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Is this really simply, if we really understand the reality of who Jesus is, the reality of his love, if we really understand that, I think that changes our commitment to God. You know, that we're not just trying to love on our own terms. So, for instance, verse, four, verse 7, love is from God. So when he talks about love, John's not talking about just worldly kindness or a sense of worldly morality that, you know, you can find in the world, it makes sense to the world. You don't really need faith to be kind, you know, as God is kind. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the love unique to Jesus, a love transcendently unique to Jesus, not possible without him. So what is our mission as Christians? What is your mission? Like, what is, what is the purpose of your faith? Have you thought about that? Like, what is it that you're trying to accomplish, and what is it God wants from you as a Christian? Our mission is to put on every quality of Jesus to its furthest, fullest extent. We cannot be satisfied or content until we are in every marginal, subtle, intimate way like our Lord. We want to think like Jesus. We want to believe the same things that Jesus believed. We want to think about God in the kind of intimate and submissive way that Jesus thought about God as his Father. We want to have the kind of commitment to prayer that that Jesus had, the kind of commitment to people that Jesus had. We want to share the priorities that Jesus had. We want to share his values. We want to see people the way that he saw people. We want to have compassion on people the way that he had compassion. We want to learn to be bold as Jesus was bold. We want to figure out how to have the same courage that Jesus had in his ministry. We want to understand the mentality that was involved in his death and the attitude that he had that led him to have the patience in enduring the cross. So what is our mission? Not just to be kind, not just to do correct things on a doctrinal level, although that is critical. Ultimately, the purpose of our instruction is love. And if that is our purpose, it changes our commitment to God radically. It also changes the confidence that it equips us to have in our faith. If you look at verses 17 through 19, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. Again, this idea of being fully like Jesus, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. I want to suggest something in verse 18. Some of you have heard me say this before, and again, you know, a lot of these things I've, I've said, different lessons at different times. When he says perfect love casts out fear, is, is he talking about our perfect love to God or his perfect love to us? Can we ever love God perfectly? You know, if you really honestly look at the way you are loving God or loving others, is that going to make you confident 
in your ability to stand before God or are you going to lose your confidence? I, I would lose my confidence, right, if it's just on the merit of how good I'm doing. But if it's on the merit of God's love, which is indeed perfect, then I do gain confidence. Because Jesus didn't have a habit of throwing people away because they were weak or even at a point where they were struggling or sinned. Jesus embodies the compassion of God so uniquely. There is a love in Jesus. We can't balance on our own. Too often what I've found um, and run into and seen, heard, is oftentimes in religious settings or religious conversations, people are thinking about God on a theological level. They're talking about God things without really knowing Jesus intimately. And so this idea of punishment and wrath and, and love, I don't think we have the ability to balance those things on our own level. And we, we swing to one extreme or the other, and then you get these different doctrines that people create and teach that don't find the balance in Scripture. What I'm saying is, Jesus is that balance. And that our mission is not to hear what people say about God's love or teach about God's love, but to read about Jesus' life, to know Jesus, to put my faith in Jesus, to commit to him. And if I will know Jesus and his love in truth, it will help me believe in this perfect love that gives me confidence in my salvation. A person who is struggling with confidence in their salvation First of all, it's usually somebody who's really trying hard to do the right thing. But what they just need to work on is learning to put more faith and put more trust in the love that Jesus has exhibited for them. So again, if this is not our mission, to have this sense of commitment and to put our faith in the love of Jesus, it's not you know, a problem of just believing maybe specific things about Jesus, but even just in, in a wholeness, it presents a problem with how we see him and know him. Um, this is ultimately what it leads to, to have true faith in the reality of Jesus. And I want to end this point on a warning in Revelation chapter 2 of just how important it is um, to really understand these things and to commit to them. Revelation 2, you have the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus in the past had been a very encouraging group. You know, everything we read about the Ephesians earlier than this letter is very good. And this seems to be many years later. And in Revelation chapter 2, you have an, uh, a statement from Jesus to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here's the hard thing. And this is just meant to be something that encourages reflection. It's kind of scary is that it's possible to be very convicted. You know, these are Christians who it looks like they were very convicted. You know, they've endured, had perseverance, not grown weary. They were testing people who claimed to be apostles. Everything on a surface level about these Christians seems to be across the board sound. 
And yet, in verse 5, this is one of the only churches where he says directly, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And it seems like this church was on the very brink of being entirely disassociated with Jesus. And what was it? Verse 5. Uh, verse uh, 4, rather. You've left your first love. The danger is it's possible to be convicted, sound in many ways, even have endurance in our faith, and yet, underneath the surface, not love Jesus. And I want you to think, what would this have looked like? You know, because I've read this in the past and been confused. Like, I mean, what were they missing? You know, it's like everything said about them is amazing. The kind of encouragement we need. There are so many aspects of love, mercy, relentless kindness, and, and patient service. So many things in the New Testament that are more intimately involved and require love are never going to be done if we don't have in ourselves a genuine love for Jesus. And so I just want you to think, how would you be able to evaluate this for yourself? We have to. We've got to figure that out. What does it look like for you to maybe have convictions where nobody else would know that maybe you're, you're doing the things that look right, but underneath the surface, you don't really love Jesus. And it's not that you really think about him all the time as, as your motive. It's, it's just that you've been serving God and you know the truth and that, that can itself present great challenges. And again, that's, that's not meant to be anything corrective, just as a danger that we just have to be very careful of. Um, before we move on to the next point, I think this is also a big problem that arises in second-generation Christians um, Christians who are very familiar with sound doctrine. It's the culture that we're used to. My parents were Christians. And so I see this in myself and in my upbringing, that it can be, it can be difficult to learn to truly love Jesus, not just accept the truths I've been taught, but to make my own personal deep investment as a disciple. Final point. In 1 Timothy 1, the impact of Jesus getting back to Paul. Um, again, these are just very basic things. But I want to end the lesson thinking about how Jesus impacted Paul and how that's meant to be an example to us of the kind of impact God intends for Jesus to have in our life, the kind of impact he can have and is appropriate for him to have. Um, I'll read 1 Timothy 1 here, verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to the, for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So I just want to bring up just very briefly here um, six points that I think tie in here to 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. And six may seem like a lot, but 
these just all, I think, are angles of what's described here that all just relate to Jesus and how we're to be changed by him. Number one is our attitude. When you really read and soak in the New Testament scriptures, it urges total immersion of our thoughts, intentions, and actions in Jesus. So, let's see, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So, six verses, but I've numbered it here. Uh, How many times Paul directly brings up Jesus? It's five times. Five times he brings up Jesus just redundantly as he's reflecting on the kind of impact Jesus has had fundamentally on his life. It's Jesus, Jesus the Lord, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ and the King, eternal, immortal, immortal and invisible. You know, when we, when we follow the lead, not only of Jesus' ministry, but the writings of the apostles, this is where it leads. So I want to ask a really simple question, but I think it's important to really think about this. How much do you think about Jesus every day? I know that might seem silly, almost like a childish question, but how much do you think about Jesus every day? You know, when you think about the Apostle Paul, how much did Paul think about Jesus? Think about the Apostle John. How much did John think about Jesus? When you read a New Testament letter that is instructive, if we really applied the things of those letters and the intentions, the thoughts that are conveyed, how much would we think about Jesus every day? And not just like thinking intellectual thoughts, I mean intentions, why we do what we do, our actions and what we're doing and how it reflects Jesus, our prayer life and how it affects our prayer life, the the constancy of our prayers. It affects the way we see sin. You know, Paul, I imagine, had a pretty strong idea of sin as a Pharisee and as a Jew, He was greatly familiar with the law, the consequences laid out in the law. Um, I mean, he believed Christians were blaspheming because of things in the law of Moses, right? But Jesus uniquely embodies the reality of sin relationally. I've done many, many times, and I think any of us of age understand this. There are so many things that I've done wrong that were sinful, that involved someone else. And I felt convicted. You know, I had some guilt. But when they were told by me, or when they found out, how much deeper do you think my conviction was? When I saw how it affected them, when I saw how it hurt them and our relationship, when I saw how much time it's going to take to rebuild the damage, was my conviction greater when I just saw it personally and I just had my own guilt? Or was it greater when someone else was involved, especially, especially someone I love? When Paul says he acted ignorantly in unbelief in verse 13, he is not saying he got a free pass because he had no idea what was going on. I can't imagine beating Eva physically, my wife, and cheating on her and thinking that I'm actually offering her service and praise in doing so. That's what Paul is saying is as a Pharisee, He was killing Christians. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's ignorance, he's not saying like, I got a free pass. I had no idea. What he's saying is, I was so lost. You know, if if anyone was lost, it's me. Verse 15, he didn't say, I was, you know, just a little bit off, off the path. You know, I just had to take a bit of a half step and renew my commitment in the right direction. No, he said, I am the foremost sinner. 
that ignorance Paul had is what condemned him, not what gives him a free pass, right? So Jesus shows the reality of sin in ways that the law never could, our sense of guilt never can. Again, when you read the Gospels, when you read the prophets, what God conveys about sin, it so far surpasses our own sense of feeling and perception. In the prophets, I just got through reading the prophets, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the exile prophets, and the Jews had just no comprehension of how guilty they really were. And God was trying to help them see the depth of their guilt to restore the relationship, and the refusal to accept it, accept it resulted in their condemnation. So again, sin's reality is so much greater when we see it in relation to Jesus and we don't just think about it in relation to our own perception. The sense of comfort we gain. Notice in verse 14 and 16, Paul doesn't just see his sin, he sees that the grace of the Lord is more than abundant. So that the more he sees his sin, the more he sees the power of his sin, the devastation, the, cat- the catastrophe of his sin, the more it magnifies this overwhelming grace that overflows from Jesus. It, it creates a sense of safety where I can fully embrace the conviction of my sin because of the unfathomable degree of grace that is clearly demonstrated in Jesus. And you notice in verse 16, why does Paul say he was given this degree of grace? As an example to everybody else, that we are never so far from God We are never so broken. We are never needing too much work. But God's grace can always heal, restore, reconcile. God is always willing. He always has the power. He always has the resources. He just calls us to open our hands to receive. It changes the way we see authority. Again, too often, um, this can happen very often, where studies of authority become very intellectual, And I think just seeing Jesus as a king simplifies everything. Like verse 17, that I don't have to understand the why behind everything that God says. Think about Nicodemus. Jesus said, you've got to be born again. He's saying something spiritual. Nicodemus says, how can I be born again? I have to crawl back in my mother's womb and get born again? I mean, this makes no sense. And Nicodemus didn't have to understand it on a physical level. He needed to just believe that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus was sent from God, and what he's saying is true and needed, whether you know the mechanics of it all or not, right? And you think about how this liberates us. There's a lot of complicated things in the Bible, but if Jesus said it, if the apostle said it, it's true. I don't have to understand the mechanics. I don't have to understand everything that goes on behind the scenes. I don't have to understand what's going to happen in the future if I make this sacrifice. Jesus said it. His full character is within it. His compassion, where he wants to lead me in his character and eternal life, everything of Christ is crammed into every instruction. And that gives me a sense of peace and comfort to obey more boldly. And then again in verse 17, if Jesus is a king, then his word is the final and authoritative truth. That I'm not trying to find loopholes around things. I'm not trying to like figure out where there's gray area. I just want to submit to the authoritative instructions that Jesus has given. This relates to things like the local church collection. I've recently just seen some discussions where there's just, again, 
I know I'm sounding redundant. Very intellectual discussions about, well, in the Old Testament they did this, and what does this mean for the collection, and can we use it for this purpose? And so often in those discussions, 1 Corinthians 16, it's to be used for the needs of the saints. That's it. That's the final say. That's the authority. I'm satisfied with that. I'm not trying to work out these complicated gray areas and trying to push any boundaries. When God speaks and he speaks clearly, that's it. It affects our endurance. And this I'll just say very briefly. The only reason we grow weary, complacent, or we lose heart in our faith is we're not fixating ourselves on Jesus. This is consistently said to Christians in the New Testament. In Hebrews 12, we're to lay aside every sin and weight which so easily ensnares us, fixating our eyes on Jesus, run with endurance the race set before us, fixating our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down on the right hand of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What is the key to remaining encouraged and steadfast? How did Paul endure so much? John, how did they endure so much and grow and grow in their love and commitment when they had so many reasons to be discouraged? They were fixed on Jesus. Their devotion was not just because God makes sense or they interacted with Jesus a long time ago and I guess that's the correct thing to do now. It's not just because scientifically, logically it makes sense. It's Jesus lived as a man and they were devoted to that man. Finally, it affects our evangelism. The goal of our evangelism, what is it? We're to speak and live in a way that urges others to convert and commit to Jesus. You know, I I talked about how Jesus changes our view of sin earlier. But I think something that we need to mature towards is at some point, as we gain stability in serving God, stability and purity, we don't just learn to be convicted by the sins we've committed, but by the sins that others are enslaved to all around us. You know, is Jesus convicted of his own sin? Or was he deeply and indignantly convicted by the sins that others were trapped within? You know, so we, we attain stability. Fine. Wonderful. That's very good. But what does that equip us for? It equips us to more effectively serve others, to more effectively care for others and have the same kind of compassion Jesus had. And we're to speak highly of Jesus. Another kind of simple, and this may seem like a childish question, does it feel awkward to tell people how much you love Jesus? To talk to people about how much respect you have for him, the great things that God has done for you because of him? Does that feel awkward or even like embarrassing? Uh, as a guy, you know, that stuff can feel like really, really weird, right? But I want you to think about this. Do you think Paul had a problem telling people how much he loved Jesus? Do you imagine that John, the apostle, the apostle of love, that he had a feeling of like weird awkwardness and tension telling people that he loves Jesus, that that's like unmanly or just not acceptable? Their love for Jesus was oozing out of them. It's what made them who they were. It's what you thought about when you were with them. When you were with Paul, you thought more about Jesus. When you were with John, you thought more about Jesus. When you read a letter that Paul wrote, your love for Jesus, your commitment to Jesus was challenged. And that's the lesson for this morning. Um, If you're not with Jesus, the exhortation is that there's no in-between. 
Uh, Either we are lost in sin and enslaved to it and destined to receive wrath from God, eternity of separation from him. But the good news is God sent his son to reconcile us back to God so that we would believe in him, be convicted to the point of repentance, and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you have not been forgiven God's way, you are still lost completely. There's no in-between. We are either lost and separated or reconciled and in Christ. If you're here this morning and there's anything we can do for you in that regard, please bring it forward while we stand and sing.